the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you uh, can Spectre is uh, haunting America, rules, the specter of socialism. Uh, I'm Dinesh D'Souza, sitting in for Dennis Prager, and uh, we are at a very precarious moment, uh, even as we uh, sign out 2020 and look forward to 2021. What are we looking forward to? What, what does the new year bring? In a strange way, it's hard to say. We're living, I think, in America now in two alternative universes, uh, two alternative realities, you might say. Uh, in one of them, uh, Joe Biden has been chosen. He's been ordained. It's a done deal. All that remains is the formalities. He's uh, making his appointments. He set up the office of the president-elect. He has named cabinet officials. Um, he's planning his inauguration. And it is all moving inexorably in that direction. And yet, a big group of Americans, and I count myself in this number, uh, believe that this is not a done deal. It shouldn't be a done deal. It can't be a done deal. Why? Because this is America. Uh, it's one thing for us to look around and with some dismay notice that some of our key institutions, our academic institutions, our media uh, institutions, even our Organs of um, the police, uh, the deep state, so-called the police agencies of government. We know that there's corruption that has infiltrated these institutions. But our electoral process itself, what does that mean? Does that make us a third world country? Does that even mean we have a country? Um, so if there was indeed widespread fraud, and I think there's now pretty strong evidence that there was coordinated fraud, not episodic, but systematic fraud and fraud perhaps of a magnitude that would make the difference in the election. It is um, beyond frustrating that we haven't had a forum to be able to make this case. It almost seems like every time the case rears its head, uh, it's blocked uh, it's blocked by a Supreme Court that says, uh-oh, well, it's none of our business. Uh, you don't have standing. You're unaffected. Sorry, Texas. What do you have to do with this election? Really? If if I'm playing at a poker table and it's a poker tournament and the next round is played by the winners of each table and I look over at the next table and I see that there there's blatant cheating going on and I shout, hey, there's cheating going on at the next table. 
Does it make any sense to say, wait a minute, Dinesh, you don't have any standings to focus on your own table. We're waiting for someone on that table to complain. So clearly something is very wrong here. If the Supreme Court is not the right forum to air these grievances, what is? Well, we we turn with some helplessness to the media uh, but we realize that there is no airing of the grievances there either. There is no attempt to even take seriously, let alone look at carefully, um, let alone refute the allegations uh, of fraud. Uh, and then, of course, there were many people who had hoped that the state legislatures, Republican state legislatures in swing districts would ride to the rescue uh, but seemingly that is not going to be the case, leaving as the only residual forum the um, Congress itself, the U.S. Congress, the House and the Senate. Um, and this is all coming to a head in early January. And wow, it seems to dovetail almost exactly with the Georgia election, uh, another pivotal moment because the Senate hangs in the balance. Of course, it's extremely troubling and I think strange that the appeal of presidential election tampering and fraud has now somewhat contaminated the Georgia election debate. And there is a faction, I think it is a small faction, but it is an influential faction that is almost trying to hold the Republican Party hostage in Georgia. Uh, over the presidential election fraud debacle. Now, to me, it is of the utmost importance uh, to win Georgia. Um, if Trump stays the president, it's important we have the Senate. If Trump isn't the president, it's important we have the Senate. Conclusion, it's important we have the Senate. Uh, we can't afford really not to have the Senate. And there's a great deal of energy and money um, and um, and wait, I'm referring here with to Stacey Abrams uh, throwing her enormous weight uh, behind the Democrats in Georgia. A hundred million dollars, I believe, for each of the two campaigns for Ossoff and Warnock. So it's important that Georgia step up and Republicans in Georgia step up. Uh, and there's no reason that you can't fight on multiple fronts, on both fronts. Yes, fight for Trump but also fight to hold the Senate because the Senate is the stopgap. If we have Biden, we're going to be moving, and this is going to be kind of my topic for today. What does it mean to move in the direction of socialism? What do we really mean by socialism? How can a discredited ideology that has been tried all over the world, in the last century there was probably one half of the real estate on the planet that was subjugated by one form of socialism or another. It's failed everywhere. So why would a an ideology that is perhaps the most discredited ideology since slavery uh, make a comeback uh, here in the United States? Uh, how could it for the first time in our country's history migrate uh, into the political mainstream? Uh, and are we talking about, do the Democrats today, have they truly embraced socialism? I mean, Biden said, I beat the socialist. Uh, did he beat the socialist or did he beat the socialist only to take on the socialist mantle himself? 
Um, are we talking about the same type of socialism that Marx wrote about, that was tried in countries like China and the Soviet Union? Or perhaps are we talking about some form of democratic socialism that is supposed to be new, but is not new because it was tried in India? I, I was raised under democratic socialism. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I would, uh, I remember my family having a, a ration card. Um, and the ration card told my mom how much rice and sugar and cooking oil, uh, she could buy. Uh, our family was on a seven-year waiting list to get a phone. Uh, seems incredible now, but um, the phone company was owned by the government. And here, as here in America, whatever the government does, it typically does badly. Um, India in the 1970s under democratic socialism was the begging bowl of the world. And I remember that when I came to America, I'd hear American families, in effect, say to their kids, Oh, Johnny, you better eat your dinner because there are millions of starving people in India. Socialism did that. Socialism created that scarcity and that misery. Um, and it deprived a whole generation of Indians of their birthright. Now, very interestingly, today, American families don't really say that anymore uh, in fact, they're more like this, likely to say to their kids, hey, Johnny, you better study hard because there are millions of Indians waiting to take your jobs. Now, why do people say that? How did India change its reputation? How did it cease to be the begging bowl of the world? How did it become, you might say, a second world country, at least for tens of millions of Indians who have now joined the middle class, live in nice apartments, drive nice cars, don't have to go to the sea to wash their clothes? Well, the answer, the short answer, is India began to abandon socialism, move away from socialism, began to embrace, at least to a limited degree, technological capitalism. Uh, and so we see uh, that socialism has had this dismal uh, record. Uh, and yet, it's got an appeal. It's appealing to some young people. It clearly has found a home in the Democratic uh, Party. And so we want to think about socialism and learn about socialism, but learn about it in its new form, uh, in the form that I'm going to call and I'll kind of lay out this a little better as we go along. Identity socialism, socialism mixed with identity politics. There's a lot more to come on this. We'll be right back. The Dennis Prager Show. Hi, Dennis Prager here again with a message for anyone struggling with pain. Of course, I want you to know about Relief Factor, the 100% drug-free supplement that tens of thousands are now taking every day. I take it every day. I like being out of pain. But I know you may be skeptical. I certainly was. Then I kept hearing about all the people, including my wife, who were no longer in pain. So I decided to give it a try. In fact, listen to Janice's story. I was skeptical at first. But because of the pain that I was having when I would uh, substitute teach and have to climb stairs, so I have lower back, hip, and even knee pain. And after about three weeks, I found that I could climb stairs pain-free. But it wasn't only pain-free. I could do it step over step without holding on the railing. I'm really happy. It's, it makes me feel like I'm young again. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-500-8384. 
It's Dinesh D'Souza sitting in for Dennis Prager. The number to call is 1-8-Prager-776. That's 1-877-243-7776. Love to hear from you and take your questions. We're talking about the election. We're talking about Georgia. And we're talking about socialism. A thought about the election as I look back on all this craziness that we've lived through uh, for the past uh, month and a half, it almost seems in retrospect that we, the conservatives, the, the patriots, we were focused on the campaign. And the Democrats, the left, was focused on the election. Now, in a normal campaign, both sides focus on the campaign. You lay out your arguments, you lay out your themes, you organize your rallies, you try to motivate your base, you try to um, win over the guy sitting on the fence. Uh, But only one side was doing that this time. Massive rallies for Trump, massive organizing campaigns. Meanwhile, the Democrats were curiously lethargic. Almost no campaigning. Joe Biden, let's put a lid on it by 11 a.m. Let me have a, quote, rally with big circles and seven people sitting in them outnumbered by two dozen reporters. It's almost as if Biden knew he had it in the bag. What's the point of campaigning? Why put in all that work? And... This doesn't mean that the left wasn't doing anything, that they were inactive, that they went to sleep, that they kind of went Rip Van Winkle on us. No, they were busy doing what? They were busy with the election process itself. They were busy mailing out tens, if not hundreds of millions of ballots, mail-in ballots. They were busy organizing the count, particularly in the critical states. Let's set up the tables this way. Let's figure out how we can board up the windows. Let's keep the observers a safe distance away so they can't really see anything going on. Let's also mobilize a massive army of lawyers so that once things get complicated, we will be ready to stymie lawsuits. We'll be able to fight this out in the courts. Think of how foresighted the left was on this. They even pressed Amy Coney Barrett in her hearings. Hey, Amy Coney Barrett, will you, will you swear here and now that you will recuse yourself from any election controversies? It's almost as if they knew that that was coming down the road. So you have this very peculiar election of 2020 in which the two sides were up to two different things. And the question I want to ask is, not even so much are the Democrats and is the left crooked? I think we know the answer to that, and we have known the answer to that, really, going back to the Clintons. This is, by the way, not something that is somehow inherent in the Democratic Party. We didn't see it in Truman's Democratic Party or JFK's or even Jimmy Carter's. Carter may have been a massive nincompoop. Um, but he wasn't corrupt in the way the Clintons are or, or Obama. So all of this has sort of developed really in the last 20 years or so. And we've seen it coming. But the question I want to ask is, where does the chutzpah of it come from? Why do these people think that they can pull it off, that they can get away with it? 
Uh, and I want to offer a provisional answer to this, and maybe this is something that we can talk about on the show. In other words, isn't it the case that the Republicans have always been seen as the party of the the nice guys, uh, of the namby-pambies, of the people who want to play it straight, of the people who, to put it bluntly, won't do to them what they're willing to do to us. And if that is true, and I believe in general it is true, now there are there is the phenomenon of the Trumpster, which is cut from a little different cloth than the traditional Republican, uh, and it and it's worth discussing what role the Trumpsters pay, play in the Republican Party. Are they the hope of the party or the bane of the party? But nevertheless, the issue is this: that the traditional Republican Party likes to play it straight likes to play by the rules, is even willing to knife its own guys when they're found to fall short or get involved in a scandal. The left doesn't care about scandals. They protect their own side when it's involved in scandals. We don't. And so the point I'm trying to make is that they think that they can get away with it because they know or they're confident that we won't do anything about it. Their view is, hey, we'll we'll knock down your monuments because... We know you're not going to knock down our monuments and we'll use the deep state against you. We'll kind of go after Papadopoulos and Flynn and Dinesh D'Souza. Why? Because we know that even if you're in power, you wouldn't dream of going after Michael Moore uh, or someone on the left like that. Uh, and we'll pack the court or at least threaten to pack the court. Why? Because you're so straight laced that even if you controlled all the branches of government, you conservatives, you wouldn't think of packing the court, would you? You're committed to judges that are based on principle and based upon following the process. When we on the left pick judges, we just try to make sure that we've got Euclidean certainty that our guys will vote our way on every single critical issue. And finally, election fraud. We on the left think we can cheat. We can pull it off. Why? Because you wouldn't dream of cheating. You wouldn't dream of harvesting ballots. You wouldn't dream about doing the kind of stuff that seems routine for us to do. So the bottom line question I'm raising, it's kind of a moral conundrum, if you will, for the right, which is quite simply, what do we do about this situation? Are we in the are we in the situation of Lincoln in 1860 when he realized the Democratic Party had become gangsterized and all the old Republican tactics that had sort of been implemented starting in 1854 when the party was founded, that those those tactics had to be modified, that a tougher approach was needed. So the question is, what do we do on our side? Do we become more like them in order to be able to more effectively fight them? Uh, and if not, isn't it the case that they're going to keep doing it to us? They're going to keep deploying the deep state. They're going to continue with digital censorship. They're going to continue with election cheating. I think this is the deeper concern, that this is not a sort of one-time calamity, but that the left is putting the country itself in a calamitous situation. Um, And if that is so, it requires a thoughtful, but also, I would say, a forceful response. Debating that response, it seems to me, at all levels, I mean, not just the level of this presidential race, 
But how do we deal with the monopoly of the media? How do we deal with the deep state? How do we deal with academia? What do we do about Hollywood? These are all questions we have to figure out. And this is as good a place as any to start. We'll be right back. The Dennis Prager Show. It's Dinesh D'Souza sitting in for Dennis Prager. The number to call, 1-8-Prager-776. 1-877-243-7776. I see our board is lighting up, so let's um, let's do some calls. Um, let's go to Dave in Sterling Heights, Michigan. Hi. Dave, yeah, go ahead. I wanted to comment. Yes. My comment is that we're in the same position in January 2017 that we were in in January 1776. In the 10 years before 1776, we were trying to preserve our rights as Englishmen, and we went through all the steps. We went to Parliament and complained, then we went to the Privy Council and complained, we went to the King and complained, just like we went to all these different courts and complained, and we went to these state legislatures and complained. And finally, when the king told us to, to shove it, we realized, okay, we're not Englishmen anymore. If we want these rights, we've got to create something different. And that's where I believe we are at right now, that there's no way that decent people can live with them. Because just like you said, I mean, they, they threaten our family. They threaten, in, in Michigan here, we had a Democrat uh, publicly threaten uh, a Democrat official in Wayne County publicly threaten uh, or call for racist violence against a Republican official in Wayne County. And it's just, how can you live with people like that? So what you're saying is, and I'd like you to spell it out, um, is that you're saying that you don't feel that these people are really your fellow citizens. In other words, this is not a disagreement over, among citizens of a common wealth about how to live, you're saying that they are trying to reduce us, you may say, to a captive population, similar to what the British tried to do to the Americans. Exactly. And you're seeing that with the COVID bill. You've got uh, Texas and Florida, which are doing perfectly fine and don't need any handouts because they're managing um, their, their states, even with the crisis, they're managing their states rationally. You've got California and New York, which are managing their states irrationally and going bankrupt. And so COVID relief was held up because the because Californians and New Yorkers in Washington, D.C. are held it up so that they could get the federal government, which is to say uh, Florida and Texas, to bail out California and New York. So you can't live in the same... They're, they're always going to bankrupt themselves. They destroy everything they touch. They're always going to uh, bankrupt themselves. But once they bankrupt themselves, what are they going to do? They're going to come after us, and they're going to start claiming that they're, they're going to start with the white supremacy lie and the white privilege lie and this lie and that lie and whatever lie they have to come up with to justify stealing from us to make up for their own the, the things that they've destroyed. This is a very, um, very worrisome situation. I want to dive into this, and I think in hour two, I'm going to get into um, the issue of what our options are in this peculiar situation. I want to 
uh, go to Yucca, Arizona, and uh, bring in Kenny, who's been waiting. Um, um, Kenny, you're on the line, and uh, what's your question? Hi, Dinesh. It's very, it's very honorable to be able to speak to you. I had the honor of asking you a question in Lake Havasu City in 2014 at a Lincoln Day dinner, and I want to thank you for your clarity of thought. Uh, most of us uh, lack the, the, the ability you have to put things in so nicely into words the way you do. Uh, the, I agree with the previous caller. It's decent pre- people versus undecent people. It's enemies, as far as I'm concerned. The left, everyone on the left is an enemy. They're, you can't talk to them. Over the years, I've tried to talk to them, and there's no reasoning with them. They have no reason in their souls. There's just nothing there to talk to. It's whatever happens, it's going to be confrontation. I want to, when we come back, we're almost out of time with this segment. When we come back, I'm going to loop in my wife. You can see I'm making this kind of a family show. and and and. Uh, but Debbie grew up in Venezuela, and something of the same kind of poison crept into the Venezuelan discourse, really shutting it down and ultimately ruining the country. So when we come back, um, Debbie and I will talk about Venezuela, socialism, and can you talk to the left? We'll be right back. The Dennis Prager Show. It's Dinesh D'Souza sitting in for Dennis Prager. The number to call is 1-8-Prager-776. 1-877-243-7776. We're going to loop in my wife, Debbie, momentarily because she has um, been there and done that. Uh, And um, uh, Debbie is now calling in and... um, are you on? Hi, honey. What's for dinner? Hi, honey. Well, is it leftover um, Indian you know. food? <laughs> leftover <laughs> Indian food. <laughs> uh, we were just talking on the last call about the fact that you can't talk to the left, that these are people who don't want to reason with us and, and not even, you know, coexist with us, but want to you may say, rule over us and hold us captive and make us live in their world. And I was saying that this is something that you know a lot about. You have a deja vu about this, and you've been talking for quite a long time about the eerie parallels between the left in Venezuela and the left in America. Um, Can you tell us about how you're feeling about what's going on in America now and um, also take us down the road of what, what happened in Venezuela that we should be wary about. Yes. Well, I, you know, for 10 years, about 10 years, I've been trying to tell whoever will listen that the Democrats are identical to the left in Venezuela. And by left, I mean socialist left, obviously not, not a moderate Democrat, if, if they still exist, but the, but the agenda that the, that the Democrats are now trying to push on America is the exact same agenda that Hugo Chavez pushed on Venezuela. 
And there are about eight parallels that I can think of right now. I don't know how much time we have, but I can go through them really quickly, ending with the last parallel, which is actually something that is occurring right now in real time here in America. So um, well, let's let's so zoom in for a moment to election yes. fraud. And I, I want to say how odd I feel, because in laying out some of the parallels in our movie Trump Card, you had actually pressed on me, let's include election fraud. And I said to you, uh, well, actually, I don't think that's a parallel. I think that may be a difference because uh, you had said to me that in America, people cheat before the election. In other words, illegals voting, attempts to register dead people to vote. But but yes. you said in Venezuela that cheating occurs after the election. And little did I know, uh, in yes. other words, you said that cheating occurs in the vote counting. So can you say a little word about how the cheating has occurred in Venezuela, and why you're feeling a sense of deja vu about that now. Right. So so recently I've talked to some some Venezuelan friends of mine who actually said, Debbie, no, in Venezuela they did have dead people voting. They did have Disney characters voting. Uh, But, you know, it wasn't wasn't large scale. Um, Hugo Chavez in, in 2004 was recalled. His first election was in 1998, and he won by a landslide because he convinced the electorate that he was the right guy for the time. You know, he ran on hope and change, and people like my grandparents, who were not socialists, by the way, and didn't want socialism, voted for him because they thought he wasn't a socialist. He went on talk shows, he went on news outlets, and and so much has said so, that he wasn't a socialist. So, Unfortunately, when he got in, he started doing some very socialist things like uh, confiscating private property, expropriating businesses, attacking freedom of speech, you know, all your typical leftist things, right? So um, a woman by the name of uh, Maria Corina Machado, who I interviewed for um, a, a uh, op-ed that I did in, in El American, uh, was actually one of the people that formed a, a voter integrity group at the time because they wanted to recall Hugo Chavez, and they did so in 2004. Uh, when Hugo Chavez got got word of this, he got very scared because he knew that he was not popular anymore. He knew that that in order to push his socialist agenda, he was going to have to do some major cheating to stay in. So he contracted a group of Venezuelans, I think three of them, um, who started a company called Smartmatic. And he asked them to guarantee a fraudulent election for him, that, that he needed for them to come up with a way to somehow switch votes and make sure that he won that election. And that is exactly what he did. In 2004, he ran. Um, they had done uh, various exit polls uh, that all pointed towards the direction of the opposition winning that, that uh, recall election. And in the middle of the night, around 2 or 3 in the morning, the vote count suddenly changed, and he came out victorious. He got 60% of the vote, and the uh, opposition a referendum got 40% of the vote. And they were just heartbroken. They couldn't believe that happened. Maria Corina knew it had to have been fraud, and they investigated the fraud. But the Smartmatic machines are 
they they actually do count on the um, you know consolidating, making sure that that the that the paper trail is the same, right? Well, in order for them not to even go there, they had to get rid of the paper trail. So unfortunately, that's what happened. And when Jimmy Carter and the Carter Center and George Soros's um, foundation um, went down there to to you know make you know look to make sure that there wasn't any fraud, they only actually looked into about 25% of the machines that had been counted. And in those machines, a lot of the paper had already been, you know, torn up or... So you're saying that the the paper trail was sort of buried and the machines sort of were able to cover their tracks. We're going to go to a break, but when we come back, let's dive into this a little bit more and ask whether this election, this fraudulent election in Venezuela was a test run for what was going to come to America 16 years later. We'll be right back. It's Dinesh D'Souza sitting in for Dennis Prager. We were talking to my wife, Debbie D'Souza, about Venezuela, and I see that David from San Francisco has a question that bears on Venezuela, so I'd like to bring in David to ask his question and then have Debbie answer it. David, you're on. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. How are you? I, um, there were a couple of things. Uh, you remember that George Washington of South America was from Venezuela, uh, and uh, Simon Bolivar. And I, I find it kind of incredible to imagine that uh, Venezuela is being accused of going socialist or becoming a colonizer. But I, if you know about Venezuela, they have the biggest pot of oil in South America. And if you remember, uh, I guess it was late last year, there was a big economic summit, and uh, Putin was standing there, and all of a sudden, Mr. Bonesaw walks into the room, and the two of them do the biggest high-five, slapping hands and carrying on. And it turns out that they are trying to crush Venezuela because Venezuela has the biggest pot of oil in the Western Hemisphere. And so when you start looking at at, uh, the United States trying to attack Venezuela, uh, it really means that the United States is kissing up to Saudi Arabia and Russia in order to keep oil prices high. And instead of uh, the United States buying oil from South America through Venezuela, we're throwing away competition and we're trying to keep... uh, we're trying to crush competition in order to keep two dictatorships alive. Okay. Um, Debbie, can you talk about Venezuela and the legacy of Bolivar and also um, the oil wealth of Venezuela, which makes the fall of Venezuela particularly tragic? It's an oil-rich country. Yes. Well, Venezuela Venezuela belonged, used to belong to OPEC, and, and they were a player in, in the oil industry for sure, especially when I was a child. I was born in the late 60s, and, and it was booming then because of the oil, but it has not, it has not done that in, in the last 15 or so years. Um, I don't believe that the United States wants Venezuela's oil. We have plenty of our own oil, but I do believe that Russia, China, and Iran are the players that we should be most concerned about when it comes to Venezuela because not only does Venezuela have a very large oil reserve, but they also have minerals uh, that are extremely uh, rich, like gold, like uranium, 
um, platinum, all kinds of, of uh, earthly minerals that are that are very very valuable. And these countries want that uh, enriched uranium. They want the gold. So. Uh, so I'm not concerned about the United States. I think the United States should have been helping Venezuela get rid of these um, tyrants uh, because Nicolas Maduro is essentially their puppet. And as long as they, as long as they control him, I don't think we're going to get rid of him. Um, that's number one. Uh, Honey, we got to run. We're sorry. Yeah. We're at the end of the first hour, oh, and I hate to cut you off. Oh, so but what say. you're saying is it's a foreign policy. It's a foreign policy threat. We'll be right back. Hi, Dennis Prager here again with a message for anyone struggling with pain. Of course, I want you to know about Relief Factor, the 100% drug-free supplement that tens of thousands are now taking every day. I take it every day. I like being out of pain. But I know you may be skeptical. I certainly was. Then I kept hearing about all the people, including my wife, who were no longer in pain. So I decided to give it a try. In fact, listen to Alan's story. I've been in back pain since my early 20s. Now I'm 51. In my early 20s, I worked for the state prison. I got injured and I was off work for about a year. I'm now a train engineer. I basically sit all day long. My wife making me take relief factor literally changed my life. I don't feel like I'm 20 again, but my back does. Everyone knows you want something drug-free. You want something that will help your own body deal with the inflammation that can often cause pain. In your neck, back, shoulder, hip, knee, or foot. Actually, even general aches and pains from just getting older, exercise, everyday living, all can be a real problem, even keeping you from sleeping through the night. So here's what I suggest you do. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father-son owners of Relief Factor, have created what they call a three-week quick start. It's a trial pack, and they've discounted it to just $19.95. That's about a dollar a day, and after that, about the cost of a cup of coffee a day to stay out of pain. That's the three-week quick start for just $19.95, and you should know this. About 70% of the people who order the three-week quick start for just $19.95 go on to order more. So do what so many others have already done. Take Pete and Seth Talbot up on their offer and go to relieffactor.com and order the three-week quick start. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-500-8384, 800-500-8384. 